the discussion as it is now, once again, Rafa can come back and come back to that discussion as well, because obviously he hasn't announced his retirement. But as we stand before Wimbledon 2023, the debate is closed, really. And welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, where we get together to debate and discuss the biggest topics in tennis. And this will be our pre-Wimbledon 2023 special edition. And for that, a special panel comprised of the following. Former Wimbledon champion, and by the way, red carpet, Mission Impossible, one of Tom Cruise's closest friends, Marion Bartolo. <laughs> Simon Cambers, author, journalist, tennis insider, you and I, I didn't see if we were invited to the Mission Impossible uh, world premiere. Simon, do, do you regularly go to these or is it just Mari? Nah, just Marion. That's what I was afraid of. All right, well, we're in the same boat, you and I. It is pre-Wimbledon 2023 and there's a lot to get to, so let's get right at it. Novak Djokovic won his 23rd Grand Slam, as we know, at Roland Garros. Now, he is the male player with the most Grand Slams above Rafa's 22. And, of course, Roger now retired at 20. A big step in the so-called GOAT race. The question is about being the most successful. Does this mean that he is the greatest, or how do you separate the greatest in the GOAT terminology from the most successful. What's the criteria, the difference for you? Marian Bartoli, you get us started. For me, it's it's totally combined. Success determine if you're the greatest or not. And records determine if you're the greatest or not. I mean, I, I just don't see a separation between the two at all. And when you look at the numbers, uh, because obviously you mentioned the three players involved into that discussion is Roger, Rafa, and Novak. Novak has the greatest records against the two of them, against Rafa and against Roger. So, I mean, the debate is really about the success, obviously, on different surfaces, which what Novak has been able to achieve. Once again, he's the only player winning every single Grand Slam three times or more. Then it's about the record against the opposite, the opposition, which is Roger and Rafa. Once again, he's a leader in there. Number one weeks and number one in the world, he's a leader in there. Finishing the years then as a number one player, he's a leading in there. So, I mean, he's just leading every single stat. So then if you, if you think about something else as criteria as maybe the style, the person, someone you like more as a personality on the court, you have, you know, different style of play, then fans, I think, can identify themselves to something different. But that's a fan purely point of view. But as a tennis analysis, as we are in tennis panels, we have to look at really purely the facts. And in that department, the discussion as it is now, once again, Rafa can come back and come back to that discussion as well, because obviously he hasn't announced his retirement. But as we stand before Wimbledon 2023, the debate is closed, really. Simon, do you have to be the winningest to be the greatest? I mean, you work with words, you're a wordsmith. It must drive you crazy how these terms are misused. And, and sometimes the um, in, in language barrier, even, it can be semantics. Um, recently, I heard a sports radio debate about who's the current day GOAT. And I was pulling my hair out. You can't be current day if it's of all time, O-A-T. So when people get caught up in this greatest and most successful, in your opinion, does it have to be the winningest to be the greatest or no? It doesn't have to be. The thing is, it's a, 
it's a great pub debate, probably one we'll be having in the pubs for years to come, you know. But the the thing for me is if Novak finishes with more slams than anybody else, there is there's no debate. You can't say that someone else is a is a greater player than him. You know, he he does, as Marion said, he owns most of the records. Um, he'll probably end up with all of them, except for the uh, number of Roland Garros titles, of course, which is impossible. Um, he can, if he wins Wimbledon, he'll equal Roger Federer's total of eight. So you know, you start to think there aren't that many arguments for other players. I I think you could talk about the impact they've had as part of it, but to me, the biggest the biggest problem with this debate is, you know, what about Rod Laver? What about comparing eras? You know, Rod Laver missed five years of Grand Slams because he turned pro. How many of those would he have won? He might have won 15 of them, in which case he'd be right up there and maybe ahead. And and then is he a better player than Novak or than Rafa or than Roger? You know, it's really just a fun discussion that uh, you can have. But I think when it comes down to it, there are many, many reasons why Novak will go down in history probably as the greatest player. As Marion said, because... He has a high, a winning record against both the other two men talked about in Federer and Nadal. Um, he's won it all of the slams three times. He continues to set standards at the age of 36, going to 37. I think, you know, we'll probably find out in the next couple of years that it'll be a discussion that doesn't happen as much because he'll have set himself apart from the rest. Yeah, it is a pub debate. Um we can't quantify greatness. We can quantify winning. That's a number in statistical columns. It's like arguing ice cream flavors. Um, you can debate that. The only thing you can prove is what leads in sales. Staying on this goat debate. It's, it's just, just quickly, Josh, yeah. it's a word I hate, but an American word, winningist. But, you know, if you're going to use that, the most most successful, then you know you definitely you definitely hit Novak Djokovic. But uh, I don't. Yeah, I agree. Greatest. You know, it's a, it's a very sure. and it's, it's open a to your term. own opinion. Um, let's continue here. In an interview with a Swiss media outlet, Roger Federer said about the goat, "What Djokovic has achieved is absolutely gigantic. It could be sufficient, but I think as long as Rafa is still playing too, you can't answer that definitively yet. The question is." Is Nadal still a threat to Djokovic, just as Roger suggests? Simon, you go first. We don't know, do we? Because until until uh, Nadal comes back from injury, fingers crossed, um, and we won't know what level he's at when he comes back. I mean, I imagine if he does come back, then he'll come back at a very high level because what's the point in him playing otherwise? In which case, he becomes a threat at all of the Grand Slams again. But by the time he plays another Grand Slam, which would be Australia at the earliest, um, Novak could have won two more and then you're you know you're setting him further ahead so Rafa could still be a factor in the debate and while he's still playing I think it's fair to talk about it that way but no question Novak is head and shoulders above the rest at the moment. Martin Bartoli is Rafa still a, a legitimate threat here or is Roger being diplomatic and also kind to his friend in this conversation? No I, I'm, I'm completely on Simon's side I, I will answer the exact same way for me you can't just count Rafa's out as long as he hasn't announced his retirement. That's just not possible with what he has been able to achieve over the years and the way he has won Ron Garros last year, being in such, such pain with his foot and having really a nasty injury and still being able to go out there, compete, beat, beat Novak and go on and win the tournament. So I think you, you can never count him out. Obviously, as Simon rightly said, so Novak can actually do the calendar Grand Slam this year. And win the whole four. And then the debate is even more, you know, from my, from my point of view, then we, we have someone who has 
two more Grand Slams, so at 25, and I don't see Rafa winning three other Grand Slam. But if Novak is not able to win the two of them and maybe just one of them, then he's already two away. He can get another Roland Garros, he can get a shot somewhere else, and then the, the I think the discussion is very much still in the air. But as it stands... You know, and it's it's quite incredible to say that because when when Roger arrived at twenty Grand Slam, we felt that that was it. The, the debate was there. It was just the greatest of all time from the style, from the personality, from the iconic player he was, and from the the bar of twenty. And then you had two players that just smashed that basically. Um, but I just feel that seeing Rafa back on the court, we may take we make tennis better, and I think Novak would agree to that. And I, I think we'd still need that rivalry until. You know, whatever year they decide both of them to go and retire, probably Rafa would retire slightly earlier than Novak. But I think for for the beauty of tennis, we we need Rafa to be back and we want to see him compete at his best. And next year is the Olympic year as well, on clay. So I think that very much put him in the situation to really go for that. And that's probably why he decided to go into a surgery and trying to recover the best possible way for him to come back as close as possible to 100% because I think it probably took a lot of time, a lot of discussions with several doctors to really go and see, okay, if I'm taking that road to surgery, am I sure to come back at 100%? That was probably really a discussion there. And I feel he had that answer from the doctors and he wants to come back at 100%. And when Rafael Nadal at 100% on clay, he's a favorite. So that's why, for me, the debate is still not closed, but I really want to see Rafa Nadal back on court. As well, of course, um, we keep with this Novak doing his magic. Simon, early in Marian's answer, your nonverbals indicated, eh, maybe not exactly. Is there something that she said that perhaps you don't agree with completely? I think she's completely right. I think Nadal, you know, it's just, we just don't know how he's going to come back. I do imagine if he is going to come back, he will be at a top level because, you know, as I said, what what's the point? Uh, his age, you know, and everything he's been through. But Mario makes a good point about the Olympics. And that's the one area you could say that Novak is behind Nadal in. Nadal won Beijing in 2008. Rafa, I mean, so Novak has a bronze medal to his name and he missed out a couple of occasions that he might have expected to do better. So that's another good sort of talking point when it comes to next year because uh, both of them will want to win that one. Okay, let's continue on. In Paris, Carlos Alcaraz lost to Novak Djokovic, as we know in the semifinals, after cramping at the beginning of the third set in what looked like it could have been one of those historically great matches. Wouldn't obviously to be. Regardless, did Alcaraz make a mistake in the short term by openly saying, quote, when you play Djokovic, you're more nervous, end quote. Isn't this a way to admit that perhaps you're just not as good as your opponent. Your thoughts on what he said um, and whether or not you find a problem <clears throat> with that. Marion, you begin, please. No, I don't think so. First of all, that was really the first year when I, I get to know properly uh, Carlos because I interviewed him on the court. I saw him behind the scene as well at um, you know the players' restaurant, the players' area when he had no matches and, and being with his team. He's the most lovely, polite guy you will probably ever come across. I mean, he's just so nice. I was, I would not say shocked, but, you know, sometimes the young generation, they're a little bit more cocky. They're sort of being slightly more arrogant and having a different body language as well as expression. He was just so lovely. I was like, okay, this guy really, really is a naked big star for me. Um, I was actually courtside to do that match. So I was really the first one to see exactly what happened. 
what happened is the set, the first two sets were physically so intense. It was really warm that day, wrong hours. It was just steamy. It was hot. It was just no air. And it just went on doing those crazy sprints and chasing for two full sets. He got the second set, but that cost him physically a lot. And you can understand that, you know, it was just so much on the line. I mean, he knew that Rafa couldn't defend his title. Almost he had to carry Rafa's hope in his racket in a way to try to make sure that Novak was not winning that one. So he, he had to sort of being the next, the next Rafael Nadal for all the Parisians who has been following Rafa's in the past 15 years, being the next Spaniard to go and, and win Ron Garros for the next 10 or 15 years and, and having to stop Ra- Novak Djokovic, that was just a lot for one kid, you know, and, and I think adding to that the physicality and, and what Novak is, has been able to put him through during more than two hours, that was just slightly too much to handle. But I mean, who can blame him for that? Honestly, it's just, you can't blame the kid. first of all, to be honest, because that's really who he is. He's just so honest with everything he's saying and everything he's doing, but that's part of his character. And I think that's why he will be loved all around this world. And I prefer someone being honest and being honest is not just, I don't think it's showing, you know, being weak. I don't associate being honest to being weak. I think he has, he has been brutally honest about how he felt on the court. He has, as all the players, a lot of respect for Novak and who wouldn't fairly. And it just so that on that day, it was just slightly too much. But I don't think it would stop him from winning a lot more Grand Slams. And I don't think it would stop him from winning Ron Garros one day. Simon, you're, you're a journalist. I occasionally play the role of a journalist. We, uh, if we're going to be honest, in the media, we punish people for being honest and we let them slide for being um, dishonest. When someone tells the truth about an opponent or a coach, what have you, comes a big story and shocking and like, should he have said that? Should Whereas opposed to if you just give the same old cliche about, I respect my opponent, I don't care who I play, doesn't matter, then it's like under the radar. Here's a young man who's telling the truth, and now we're asking whether or not what he's really saying is, I'm just not as good as him. Your thoughts on this entire idea for this young man who's learning maybe to not be so honest? No, I, I loved his honesty. I like it. I, I think it's way better to be that way than to sort of cover up and pretend like nothing happened and, oh, I just, it wasn't my day and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He he knows how good he is. This is the thing. He's already won a Grand Slam. So it's not like he's got any insecurities. He's playing Novak Djokovic on a massive stage and trying to win another one. And that's That created the stress, that created the cramp. What I really like about his honesty is that it allowed us to explain to people that cramp is not just a conditioning issue. It's not just physical. It's not, oh, he hasn't worked out enough, hasn't done enough training, and look at him, he's, you know, now he's cramping. That just shows how weak he is. It, sh- it it meant that we could explain it properly, and I think it's cramp is a really misunderstood part of sport, and especially tennis, because we know from talking to players talk- and from going through it yourself in, in your own level or whatever, that it's not just about the physical side. It's what's going on in your head that affects your body too. And so he was under massive stress. You could see it from the start of the match. He wasn't quite himself. He wasn't his normal, smiley, relaxed self. He was he was tense. He was tight. And it in, when you hold your body in a tight way, you are going to get you know cramps. It happens. Uh, it was a, an exhausting first two sets. No one would, you know, Novak said he was struggling himself. You could see it. But 
Alcaraz didn't have the experience to be able to cope with it. I think it's great. It shows others th- that they can also be honest and it's and don't be afraid to be honest. And as you said in in the introduction, we praise, you know, we, we get really frustrated when people don't tell us the truth. Um, and it's great to see a young player not afraid to tell us the truth in a in what must have been a really difficult situation because he had a great chance to win his first Royal Garros. Marion, as a player, what is it that fans and even media don't necessarily understand or, or grasp about cramps? As Simon alludes to, beyond conditioning and hydration, you played at this level. You know better than they do. What do you wish they knew or at least understood about the truth about cramps and how it can be more than just a physical attribute of hydration? Well, I think, to be honest, it's slightly more the media than the fans. Um, I think the fans are really appreciating when a player keep on trying and keep going until the end of the match and that we applaud the effort. I think it's more the media trying to prove to you that you're bad. And as uh, Simon said, you're not in good condition. You haven't done the workout. Um, you know, something is wrong with you or your nutrition is not good or you have to change something. I was actually reading some articles after that match saying, oh, you know, maybe he needs to change entirely the way he's um, heating, this kind of food that he has to stop heating, or, you know, he has to change his hydration or what kind of drinks he's having between sets or during the match or whatever. And I was like, you, you guys have just no idea. I mean, a cramp is just something that happens because you have a disbalance of your fluids inside your body. You're sweating way too much, therefore you're losing too much sodium and too much salt. And at some point, the muscle just can't function anymore. And obviously, we all know that when we are more stressed, we're going to sweat more. It's just natural. We all have been into that situation. And the stress can be caused by anything. You know, you, you get into in front of someone that impressed you, you get stressed and you start to sweat or you're in the discomfort. You don't feel comfortable, you're in discomfort, you start to sweat. It can come in any point. And obviously, once again, that day, it was just extremely hot. And I think the fact that, you know, Carlos had to hit several and several more balls than usual, that it would have been a winner against anyone else that was not a winner against Novak. And we all know that Novak pushed their players to that. And it was very much the case this year at Roland Garros. Once again, Kasper Ruud felt exactly the same after the end of the first set. After an hour, 45 minutes of that first set, he was just spent. It w- that w- the match was almost over. So for me, you know, obviously I had different issue. Cramp was never a huge issue for me because... My muscle switches were just so slow that never cramped. I had other issue, but not the cramping. But I, I was definitely prone to have muscle strain. And, and often it would come to the end of the tournament because I had to do a lot of training outside and the muscle strain would come very often on my legs. And I just felt, I went all through this semi-final or final or whatever. And I'm feeling like I really can't push anymore on that leg. What should I do? And that's where the media comes out to you and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, this player doesn't have this problem and that player doesn't have that problem. But you're like, yeah, but it doesn't solve my problem. Okay, so I have an issue. I'm going to try to solve it. And I think very much so having Ray Carlos Ferreira on his side is helping to just calm down the storm, go into a quiet place, don't listen to all the noise coming from outside and just come down to his team that has been with him for like ages and say, okay, let's figure out exactly what happened. Let's not come into a crisis situation for nothing. And I just move on to the grass court season and get ready for the grass court season. That's exactly what they have done. Okay, Queens, the beginning was not that easy. It was the first set. You can see he had to find his rhythm and momentum. But I never felt it was getting sort of 
anxious about his level or anxious about his fitness level. He just went on and won the tournament and now arrive at Wimbledon, maybe not as a favorite because we all put Novak as a favorite, but, you know, someone right in there, right in the mix to be able to go far. Simon, early in her answer, uh, you wanted to make a point. Go right ahead. Yeah, just a quick one. I think tennis is also responsible for the misconception or the misunderstanding of, of cramp as well, the, the sport itself, because you look at the rules, you can only have treatment for cramp twice, you know, in a rub down at a change of ends. It's it's very confusing. What is the difference between cramping and having like a like Marin says, a muscle a muscle tight muscle or a muscle strain? Not really anything. It's affected by your brain, it's affected by everything else. I, I think they need to look at that uh at some stage to, you know, to encourage, to educate everybody about it, because otherwise you're going to get the same questions coming up each time. That reminds me the incident of Caroline Wozniacki in Doha when she was playing the Year's End Championship against Vera Zvonareva, and she just had a full body cramping. She basically collapsed on the court. She couldn't even stand anymore, and no one was allowed to go and help her. And that was just heartbreaking, and you just feel, why on earth... When you see something that is so obvious, we often have that debate about faking injury or sort of saying that you have an injury to have a medical timeout that we stop the, the momentum of the match. That is so clear for everyone. And yet alone, you're not allowed to help the player. I mean, that just doesn't make sense whatsoever. That rule needs to be changed. And, you know, Caroline has actually announced that she will come back on the tour after being a mom of two and she will come back to Montreal. But for me... I, you know, to see her in that difficulty, knowing how much of an athlete she is, and she still suffers, and not being able to help her is something massively wrong. And to come back to Carlos, he actually lost the game. So the cramp happened. It was one love for him, 43 for Novak. He obviously missed the return in the net, one all. But then the, the champion announced that he lost the next game to love. So it was 2-1 for Novak breakup without having to play that game, just because he's starting to cramp and say that he needed some medical attention. That is just purely wrong. That is just something I don't understand. All right. Continuing on, if Novak Djokovic were to win Wimbledon, he would equal Roger Federer with eight titles in London. Question, the producers ask us, does that put him on par with Roger on grass? Yes or no? Simon Cambers. Well, it makes him equally successful right. at Wimbledon. Um, but of course, of course, Federer won Haller 10 times. You know, he won countless other things on grass that puts him in a sort of different level on the surface. I think in a, in terms of a pure grass court player, I don't think Novak would claim that he is as good as as Roger was. But, you know, winning eight titles at Wimbledon will make him just as good in many people's eyes as Federer. I think overall on grass, no, but that's, yeah, no. All right, Marianne Bartoli, same question. I think for this year, overall, no. If Novak goes on and win next year and makes it to nine, then I think we have another debate. But I think for sure this year, equating Roger, I think, and Novak knows that, you know, Roger was the first one to take out Pizza Empress, who was the master on grass. I mean, there is just so much history there. Uh, but obviously, we all remember that Wimbledon final when the Novak saved two match points and go on and beat Roger. That was sort of, you know, passing the torch as well. I mean, that was this kind of moment I felt. Um, but very much equating, absolutely. If Novak goes on and win a ninth next year and, and put him, him as, you know, I think the only one winning nine times Wimbledon on the men's side, I think that's another story. But for now, absolutely agree with Simon. We're sort of equaling the par. Speaking of masters on grass, it reminds me of a time I was out eating chicken wings with Venus Williams and friends. And a mutual friend of ours said, Venus, you won Wimbledon, right? And Venus said, yeah, uh-huh. And 
he said, how many times? And she said, a couple. And I thought that was just such a subtle, humble, instead of saying, well, five, this one, just a couple. Thought that was very um, low key. And she beat v, me who, once way, in the final as well. Again. Let's continue on. Wimbledon is the only, and I know this is hard to remember sometimes, but the producers remind me and then to remind you, Wimbledon, the only Grand Slam where Iga Svantec has never reached at least the quarterfinals. The question we ask today as we head into this 2023 edition, can Svantec translate her success onto grass now? Will this be the time in which it's the quarters and then some? Marian Bartoli, you go first. I think very much this year I was following her matches in Bad Hamburg when she's uh, playing the tournament this week. She looks to me a lot more comfortable than the previous years on grass. I think last year she just arrived completely exhausted at Wimbledon. I think she just had so many matches. She won the sunshine back-to-back. She won everything on clay. And it was just, it was just, yeah, she was absolutely exhausted. I think this year, obviously, she didn't have that much success before Toronto Garros. That led her to have slightly more time off, slightly less matches under her belt. But that way, she was able as well to have a build-up tournament. Yes, of course, it was not Eastbourne, but she still played some matches on grass and she still have to face some opponents that she has to beat. And I very much look at her game style and I feel the forehand is going more through the court. She's not as disturbed as the previous year when you were hitting fast to the forehand and she was really struggling. Um, I can see a little bit more of technical adaptation on that forehand as well. And you can see just someone being so confident from defending a title in Roland Garros. I mean, it's just so clear. You can see she's very settled. She, once again, is like Carlos Alcaraz. There is not that much doubt going through her minds. And obviously on the women's tour, we know that the mental part and the confidence is huge. It plays actually a lot and a lot more than on the men's, on the end results of a match. So when you look at her contenders, Sabalenka, not so well in the preparation tournaments. Rebekina, very difficult for her to get out, out of that various situation. And obviously, she probably didn't have the amount of practice she wouldn't love to have before a Grand Slam as well. And defending her title, it's it's a lot of pressure that she would have to face for the first time. Anshaper is struggling a little bit. So it comes down to really eager if she can put out her and, and can play her best tennis. I feel for the first time, she can absolutely go further in the quarterfinals, but I put her in the probably top three, top four to actually win the title. I felt Coco Goff was really impressive today against Jessica Pegula in Eastbourne, um, someone that, of course, was able to take out Venus Williams on center court and, and just on court number one, sorry, and just being the massive star she has begun to be. So she can be the one also starting to, to make some noise at SW19 once again. But I think for the first time, I would put Iga for sure to reach a quarterfinal and to, in my mind, slightly further. The question, Simon, is can Svantec translate her success now onto grass? And I know that with the answer, of course, is yes, she can. I think what I'm asking you now is will she, in this instance, will she take this recent success and finally break through beyond that point? I, th- I think she probably will. She looks like she's coming to terms with grass. And the whole thing with, with Iga is... You know, she has to, she's she's so sort of smart, so intelligent that she really has to understand exactly how to play on a surface before she can do it. So she's one of those people that needs to 
know what she's trying to do before she does it. She's not instinctive in in the sense that she'll just get on there and play. She needs to have a game plan. She needs to feel comfortable. I think what we saw with Carlos Alcaraz at Queens, you know, where he talked about movement being the key for him, the same thing goes for Sviantec. It's about how she feels with her feet on the grass, you know, just get used to that feeling of moving on a grass court, which is different to every other surface. So if by playing this uh, warm-up tournament and doing well, she has, is beginning to do that, then I think she's in a very good place to translate that success because, as Marion said, her biggest rivals are not playing the kind of tennis that they have been playing in the first half of the year for various reasons, be it health or or whatever. And yes, someone like Coco Goff, I hope she's in the other half. That could be a great final. Um, or somebody else might come through. But I think Iga, I'd be very surprised not to see her in the quarterfinals this time. All right. Speaking of Iga, uh, she, Sabalenka and Rabakina, it says here the new women's big three. I'm going to say currently. Currently, the women's big three have dominated the first half of this year. The question is, will this continue at this Wimbledon as we head in now? Marianne Bartoli, will that continue? Yes or no? No, I think we will have more surprise. I think we will have um, some big eaters coming out. I'm thinking about Kudermetova. I'm thinking about Samsonova. I'm thinking about Alexandrova. I'm thinking about Ostapenko, even Georgie. All those girls that can hit the ball very flat and very hard and who are confident on the grass that have played. And Petra Kvitova, obviously, winning the title twice before and winning in Berlin, which was such a big event with a huge field, um, beating Caroline Garcia, beating a lot of good players. And just you can see she just had the perfect game. Obviously, I played against her on grass, so I know how it feels when you're on the outside of the court. When you start to have that slicey lefty serve that just comes out and, and takes you completely out of your strike zone, and she starts to get on with that forehand, it's just very difficult to stop her. So I, I will actually put Petra as my big sort of dark horse that can make some damage in the draw. I just don't see it in Arribakina all of a sudden finding her form and, and going and you know, make it to the semi-final or final or even further. I think we will have, I think she will go through the first few rounds, but maybe round of 16 or quite a final would be the bar. So I think we'll have more names coming through. I just don't see, again, the, the big three and just one more player going into the semi-final. I think we'd have some exits like here earlier on than that. Simon, before you answer, am I overstepping my bounds when I declare this the current big three as opposed to the new big three? Or, or is this in fact, because I'm, I'm going off of the producer's notes in question and I read it as the new women's big three. And to me, it feels more like a current, like at the moment. Am I wrong in that? Well, I mean, there's, there's not much difference between the two things, really. We can only really judge it, let, let's say, at the end of the year when they've had a whole year together um, and see what they've done when you include Wimbledon and the US Open. But um, they're the big three at the moment. They're the ones who've set themselves apart okay. from the rest. So I think it's okay. fair. but. To answer the question, um, they're vulnerable here at Wimbledon. This is the difference between on a clay court or a hard court where they're much more comfortable. For for in for each of them are more vulnerable. Sabalenka's had some good results at Wimbledon. Yep, that's true. And I expect her to play well again. Um, but she may have, you know, it's going to be tough for her answering questions again about, about the war. That's going to be difficult. You know, she has a lot of off-court stuff to deal with. Um, so you don't know how that will affect her. But her game is good for grass. Rebakina, I think, is you know clearly hasn't had the preparation that she would like, and we don't know what kind of fitness and health she'll be in. So I, I don't, I'd be surprised if she does 
you know, it goes as far, obviously, as, as she did last year. I'd be surprised if she's in contention. Ego, we've talked about. I'm looking for a big performance from Karolina Mukova if she's fully fit after Roland Garros because her game style is perfect for grass if she can put it all together again. And hopefully she doesn't feel any extra pressure as a result of what happened in Roland Garros. Totally agree with Marion about uh, Petra Kvitova, but I love Petra so much that I can't tip her just in case mm. she messes up because she could have won that tournament. She could have won that tournament seven, six, five, six, seven times, given her pure talent for play on grass. But you know, you've got to put it all together over two weeks. You've got to have a bit of luck. Things have got to go your way health-wise, you know, and it doesn't always work like that. She's won it twice. She could easily win it again if if she's on for two weeks on her game. Um, and there, and Coco Goff is a danger, and there are other players who will have their moments. I think, you know, we'll, we'll see some some unusual names having some big wins early on. But the big three are vun- more vulnerable here than they are elsewhere. That's for sure. Maureen, you had a point. Go yeah, ahead. I just wanted to add on Arina Zabalenka that for me this year she has been really showing consistency in Grand Slams. Obviously, winning in Australia, making to the semi-final Roland Garros, and she's just showing that she's able to peak for those moments. So that's why, for me, she will be reliable and she would go deep. My slightly more question mark is on Elena Rybakina, not on the game at all, but just purely on the fact that she hasn't been able to practice at all, and I don't know how her health level is going to be because she hasn't been able to recover since Roland Garros. WTA has announced a plan to have full parity with the men's game by 20. 20- 33, that's a full decade, with the bigger events offering equal prize money by 2027, which is just three and a half, four years away. What are your thoughts on this plan? Will this come to fruition and how will it work? Simon? Yeah, it's good. It's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? If you're going to have joint tournaments at the same level, they should be paid the same money. No question. You know, that we talked about this many times. If you put the same effort into your career, the same... You know, you pay the same money for your rackets, your coaching, etc., etc. You make the same sacrifices. You're playing in the same tournaments at the same time as the, the men. You deserve equal prize money. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it feels like we're moving closer towards a merger of the two tours. You know, is this the first big step to doing that? Um, you know, we all, we hear Billie Jean King put it better than anyone else. If, you, if you're stronger together, you can market things better. You get better deals uh, for, for broadcast, et cetera, for TV. Um, you know, you're going to make more money that way. It's a, it's a much easier thing to, to, to uh, market. So I feel like this is the first major step towards jo- a joint tour. I don't necessarily like these two-week tournaments outside of the Grand Slams. I feel that's a bit too much. I don't really think that's necessary they could still do it in 10 days but in general i think we're looking at the first step towards a merger and i'm fine with that marian same question finally that would be my only word i mean honestly i've been talking about it with bilinging for hours and hours and hours that has been our fight for decades and and obviously passing the torch from Billie Jean to Venus and Serena to the next generation and just trying to get there step after step trying to sort of all the time having to explain to everybody that, yes, we deserve equal price money, that, yes, we're practicing as hard as the men's, and, yes, we have the same expenses. And it's just, you know, as we are moving in this world, when you look in business as well, and you start to have women CEO and you start to have highly paid women, it's just natural that in the woman's sport that is the most viewed around the world, that is attracts the most amount of fans, it's just logical that finally we, we have what we deserve. 
And I'm so glad that the WTA has been doing that move and the ATP is agreeing to it. And I agree with Simon. I think it's, it's coming to a merge of, of the two tours. But I think it would be also more clear for the fans that they just come to watch tennis and, and then therefore they can enjoy the WTA and the ATP in the same place and just being like a Grand Slam ready. And it just feels more natural rather than having the Grand Slam when everyone comes together and then everyone goes to separately again. And, um, and I think ultimately the fan base is extremely important for the tour to function for both of them because that just get every, everything else in order from the broadcast to the sponsor to the people investing into tennis. We need to have the fan base to being able to sell tennis to everyone who is interested in that. So I very much applaud that idea. I'm so grateful that finally we're actually recognizing all the efforts that we have done through all those years to get there. And I can't wait for the girls to get that prize money. Amen. Before we go, since we're pre-Wimbledon, I'm not going to ask you a prediction. I'm going to ask you for a name on the men's side, women's side. Potential disruptor. Someone that might disrupt an entire side of a bracket. Simon, who do you got, men and women? Uh, that's difficult. It's hard. Um, men, on the men's side, um, Francis Tiafo. I'll go for it. Mm. On, on the, women, on the women's it. side, uh, is Mukova a disruptor? Or is Petra a disruptor? Sure. I'll take one of them. Okay. Same question. Maureen Bartoli, disruptor, potentially. Could change up the entire look of the uh, quarters and semis. Petra Kvitova, but she's not that much of a disruptor because she's top 15, but I would still go with her because I love her so much. And obviously, she's my era. I used to play against her. And on the men's side, I would go with Bublik. I think can be someone on the grass that can really disrupt a lot of guys. Fantastic. All right, everyone enjoy uh, Wimbledon. And also, um, Marion says, go see Mission Impossible Part 12 in theaters soon, I guess. Uh, for Simon and Marion saying thanks for watching, everyone. Do enjoy the tennis. Make sure you follow, subscribe on all platforms. Of course, check out the audio-only content as well um, right here on the site. We will see you next time post-Wimbledon 2023 for more match points right here on TennisMajors.com.